I was down in the river bottoms just chucking pigeons underneath the falcons, no big deal. Uh, there's a local vet, Tim Sullivan. He was tagging along that day. And uh, uh, bird stoops down, catches a uh, catches a pigeon, and starting to pluck and eat on it. I'm like, you know, I, I kind of got to give it a little bit of space, a little bit of time I can make in, but I need a few more minutes before I do it. Otherwise, she's going to pack it off. It's a female peregrine, and uh, uh, the bird squats down real flat and bolts with the bird, you know, just about that quick. And here comes a male bald eagle you know, boop, 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 right overhead. Chase that falcon about a half a mile to three-fourths of a mile out. They turn 90 degrees. The eagle uh, gets over the top of the bird, dives down, uh, grabs the pigeon rather than the falcon. Unfortunately, the peregrine's foot is between the eagle's foot and the pigeon. Hey, welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast. Appreciate you all's continued support and for joining us again for another great episode. I'm sure you all will find this one pretty entertaining and we'll get some good stuff out of it. But before we get into it, I have to give a quick shout out to our sponsors of the podcast being Bobby Yaga Crafts out of Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check out or order any of his really nice handcrafted equipment yet, I highly recommend you do so. And if you haven't checked them out, just head to at Bobby Agagasak on Instagram, or you can get his contact information off of our website at falconrytold.com. Get you a nice set of anklets or hybrid jesses or whatever suits your fancy, but whatever it is, you won't be disappointed. It's all great stuff. I also want to give a quick shout out to the newest sponsor of the podcast being Seth Roy of North Mountain Goshawks. And if you are soon to be in the market for a new goshawk, especially a parent rear goshawk, you should definitely hit them up. Head to uh, northmountaingoshawks.com or send a Facebook message and get on their list for next year. He uh, produces some great birds. I've seen some of them fly and they're really high quality game hawks. So if you're thinking about adding a North American, East Siberian, or Finnish goshawk to your hunting team, don't wait too long because his orders fill up quickly and you'll want to get on the list sooner rather than later. So hit him up and tell him we sent you and think you'll be really happy with your new hunting partner. And speaking of goshawks and exhibitors in general, I think you all will probably recognize the name of our guest for this episode of the Falconry Toll podcast because of the books that he's written about imprinting exhibitors being Mike McDermott. And this episode has kind of been in the works for a while. And thanks to some mutual friends and some bourbon, he uh, finally agreed to come on the podcast and talk shop a little bit about what inspired him to write the books and kind of what all went into it, some of the different experiences he's had, and of course, share some of the stories that he's had in all the years that he's practiced falconry. So just an FYI, there's some colorful language in this episode. Just be aware of that. (laughs) So if you're uh, offended by uh, cursing at all and things of that nature, well, you've been warned. However, there's lots of really entertaining and informative stuff in this episode. I think you all will really enjoy it. I know I had a hell of a time catching up with a friend and spending an afternoon recording this with Mike, and it was a really good time. So, like I said, I hope you all enjoy it, and I now give you all uh, Mike McDermott. Here we go. I mean, it's never too early for whiskey, though, dude. It's not. 
I mean, as they say, what's the saying? It's, it's 10 five, a.m. Five, five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> it's 10 a.m. right now. Ah, uh, well, I don't know. I've, I've, ever since high school, I've, I've never really been a whiskey guy. I've, I've always been more of a, of a rum guy. And I think it's largely because rum is still to this day the only thing I haven't gotten sick on. But, uh, teach their own. I mean, I've got a lot of friends that love their, their bourbon, their bourbon and their, and I their never whiskey. tasted whiskey until I was 50 years old. Really? First time. First time. Well, what, what did you, what were you mainly drinking before that? Is beer or beer. anything? Beer. Yeah. Yeah. Married guy stuff. Married guy stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know. Over the years for me too, I've kind of become more of a beer snob and it's not, it doesn't help my, my palate or my, my wallet. I can't drink like the, the really commercial stuff anymore. I've become kind of a porter and a stout guy. I mean, what were you drinking beer wise before the whiskey? Mm, Sam Adams mainly. Yeah. I'm real fond of their Oktoberfest. Oh, me too. Yeah. And their um I think their winter lager is really good too. But yeah, the uh the Oktoberfest for sure I can do. Line and Kugels. Yeah. Another brand. Yeah. Yeah, I can't uh, I can't do the normal Boston lager though. The Sam the normal Sam Adams Boston lager, not a fan. Hmm. Have you ever had it? Uh yeah, I'm sure I have. <laughs> it didn't strike me like big deal one way or another. Yeah, it's not my thing. But anyway, yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own tastes, just like everything from beer to to uh, liquor to falconry. You know, everybody's got their own. I don't know. I guess things there, <laughs> whatever does it for them, I guess. But uh, but no, man, it's good to see you. And thank you. Uh, thank you again for for allowing me to to invade your life for for half a day and <laughs> and uh, catch up. I mean, it's been um Gosh, probably what, like at least five or six years or something since I've oh, actually more. seen you in person. Um, the last time I think I remember seeing you in person was whenever I, I came to see your your Merlins fly. Whenever that oh, was. Oh, the one that was ringing starlings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I missed that bird. Yeah. It was your 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 darker Merlin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a dark one. Uh, not technically a Suclei. I'm doing air quotes right, right now. Not right. technically a Suclei, <laughs> uh, but just a real dark columbaris. But yeah, it did ring starlings and it liked to take them up. Yeah. Yeah. You had the you had the two Merlins. And I think shortly after that, you you transferred the other Merlin off, uh, if I remember right. But, but no, that was cool to see. I know there for a while, that's all you were really wanting to do was was the Merlins and stuff. Yeah. And, for probably 15 years or so. Yeah. 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 That's that's all I did. Yeah. Uh, went out to uh, Bradshaw's place in. Idaho or Washington, spent a couple of weeks with him, trapped a bunch of Merlins, learned how, came back home and uh, basically applied it and started trapping Merlins here. The first winter, I think we caught eight or nine Merlins locally here in Missouri. Been trying to make it back up to Jairus for a while. You know, I, I haven't seen him in person for a while either. Um, but yeah, I mean, I when I got to go out and, and see him trap and, and fly his Merlins, I've, I've learned a lot. It was I mean, Merlin school. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's another bit of that falconry tuition that we pay, I guess, in a way. I mean, I it's I've, I've tried flying one Merlin myself, and it didn't end up being... It didn't end very well. Let's just put it that uh, way. You don't have a lot of sh chance your first few times swinging yeah. a bat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I failed and failed and failed and failed. <laughs> Literally went to Jeremy's for two weeks, came back and succeeded. That yeah. was what pushed me over the edge. Yeah. 
Well, and sometimes that's that's what it takes, you know, and you can't keep spinning your wheels all the time. It doesn't really matter how experienced you are in certain aspects of, of all of this. Sometimes you just you still got to get that outside help. That's that's one of the big things about Merlin's that appeal to me so much is that it doesn't matter how skilled you are at this or that, or how many years of experience you have at this or that. With Merlin's, you're starting over day one, year zero. Yeah. And nothing you've learned before is really going to apply. Yeah. Well, and I remember you you telling me whenever I was over here that, I mean, you really wouldn't see an issue with someone starting off as a Merlin with Merlin as their first bird because it's such a like a, a niche individual type thing. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. Uh, there's a few caveats to that. Uh, you need to have a good prey base for Merlin's, mm-hmm. which 90 percent of the falconry population probably does have that. But here's the big kicker is you got to have a resource on hand that's close by that actually has experience catching game with Merlin's and hunting with Merlin's. And uh, if you've seen it done, then you can apply it yourself and do it. But if you've never seen it, you're just going off books, videos, YouTube stuff. And I don't know. That's pretty tough. But if you got the human resource available, yeah, for a very first bird, you might as well. Because there's nothing you're going to learn with your red tail that's going to apply to Merlin's. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I do agree. I mean, you can apply that statement a lot, too, I think, to a lot of species. But I think... You're right. I mean, there's there's a lot of species where you can, I don't want to say get away, but I mean, you need more guidance with certain species than you do others, I think. And I, I would totally agree, especially when in, with the smaller birds and like kestrels and merlins with the weight management aspect of things, too. And figuring all that out, I mean, it can be a lot. Yeah, weight management is um, almost a mindless, effortless task for me anymore. Yeah. Um, You've been doing this a long time. <laughs> well, you know, you fly birds for 40 years and you're going to pick up something. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and as, as I like to apply to myself, the, the saying of every so often, you know, the, the blind squirrel finds the nut, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The broken clock is right twice a day type of thing. Yeah. I, I, um, refer to that to my, myself or, or apply that to myself quite often. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny though, man, like, um, how things have kind of evolved over the years and it's still something that I would like to do more whenever I, I have the time and I think resources because I'm the one time I tried it, had to leave her out overnight, came back the next morning. And the only thing I found was, was the, uh, the backpack, the transmitter and, um, you know, and the, the transmitter antenna was extremely bent, you know, right. <laughs> scratched up, you know, so it was probably food for, for an hour or something throughout the night, unfortunately, but no doubt, but yeah, as you know, the Merlin's kind of, it hit a little harder, you know, sometimes whenever you lose them, I think, but, uh, well, it, it's, it takes so much time and experience that you put into it to get a bird that's really achieving at high levels. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that bird that's achieving at really high levels and it's, there's a tragic ending, it just hits you in your heart and soul. It just destroys you. Yeah, for sure. And I know I felt that way with that, with that IS uh, prairie that, that I had that, that male, and uh, you know, you spend four months, you know, raising something and then all of a sudden overnight, it just, dies or whatever i mean it yeah it's just it takes a lot out of you for sure but uh well i mean what else have you been doing the last i mean it's like i said it's been a minute 
I mean, what's uh, what's the latest thing been for you? Well, uh, basically, my right knee is <laughs> decided to self destruct, <laughs> and, and uh, I have uh, been a few years since I've flown in a Sipper. The last bird I flew was a uh, uh, chamber raised female finish. Fantastic bird, cannot recommend them enough. And uh, that kind of put the nail in the coffin as far as my knee goes. And uh, that that just pretty much destroyed me. Since then, uh, I've just been flying long wings because it involves a whole lot less walking. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, some of the some of the long wing that I've seen, like especially like with those guys in Mexico and everything, though. There was some, <laughs> there there was definitely still some walking, but it wasn't the type of walking that I think you're you're used to with you know your quail and other stuff through no, lots of you know when heavy you're terrain. Yeah. Uh, going behind bird dogs, I mean, yeah. there's it's it's a uh, forced death march. Yeah, <laughs> and you, <laughs> you know, miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Yeah. Uh, when you're running bird dogs, you know, half the time you can just stay in the car. The dog will run the field, go on point, unhood your bird. And uh, go fly the point, and that's what I'm doing with Partridge. That's an abbreviated version, of course. Mm. Uh, but that's what I'm doing with Partridge right now in, in, in Iowa, in uh, bird dogs, in uh, passage peregrines, in Hungarian partridge, and it's all very, very good mix. Nice. Well, and you've, I mean, you've been retired for several years now, so it's like. You know those Iowa trips and things like that. Are you starting to do a lot more of the the commuting falconry than you are even around here? Or? Well, th throughout my working career, uh, I worked as an educator for thirty years. Uh, you're tied to your school, and vacations are few and far between. Uh, it just makes life tough and, and challenging. You have a golden rule that you basically got to follow if you plan to be successful in falconry: fly the bird that matches the game that you have locally. Well, when you retire, it's like uh, there's two times of freedom in a man's life. The first time of freedom happens when you turn 11 and you get your first bicycle. <laughs> and your range increases and you feel the wind in your face. And you can go visit friends that live miles away. You can go to the river to go fishing. You can, you can run up to the valley and, and shoot squirrels. Uh, you get that same sense of freedom again when you retire. You don't have a job that's tying you down. So rather than engaging in like a little bit of falconry each day, um, my wife and I will go to Iowa for three weeks at a pop mm -hmm. and stay there and, and just fly at Partridge and Pheasant every day. Uh, or we would go to Texas for two weeks at a time or Kansas for two weeks at a time. Um, We've never really made it a four-week trip yet, but we've had a lot of three-weekers, and that's been very rewarding, pleasant in and of itself. So around the house, we're just flying to the drone. It's not terribly thrilling, not terribly exciting, but does keep the birds fit. But all of our hunting is on long, extended trips like that. And when I say we go for three weeks at a pop, that's like each month. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's awesome that you've got the ability to to do that now, you know, and explore some of the you stuff. You will, too. <laughs> make good choices, and you will, too. <laughs> make trying. bad choices, and you'll be working till you're old and crippled. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, uh, I always uh, plan for the worst and try and keep the bar 
<laughs> really low for myself. I mean, I hope so, but I just assume that I'm going to be working until I die. Uh, that's just the assumption I always go by. That way, later on in life, whenever it works out, I'll be that much you know, more surprised, I guess, and happier for it. But uh, <laughs> everybody's got their way of dealing with it. But, well, uh, plan ahead yeah. and do the math. <laughs> and do the math. Yeah. It's like weight control on a bird, yeah. except it's your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different way of looking at it. Yeah, no, that's cool though. I mean, like I said, I'm I'm happy that at least for you, you know, it's it's worked out and and uh, I mean, remind me though. I mean, like uh, you know, Leanne flies birds too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And has has for a while also, correct? Uh yeah, she's completely stopped when we had children mm -hmm. and uh until they were pretty much grown and out of the house and off to college and then she started flying again. Yeah. And she's very very fond of Merlins. She really likes her peregrine and uh there we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as where you're at, I mean, even if it wasn't the physical limitations you're starting to kind of deal with now in, in this junction of life for you, I mean, do you still prefer one thing over the other? Are you still mainly an occipiter guy or have you kind of... Um... Well, I'll, I'll attack it from a diff slightly different angle. Uh, okay. I like flying feather. Mm -hmm. That's really it. It's it's what you want to kill. Mm -hmm. What I want to kill is pretty much feathered. Uh, you know, I've, I've caught gobs and gobs of rabbits and quite a few squirrels. Uh, I was a little too old to be in the big squirrel generation within falconry, and I kind of attacked that later on down the road. Uh, but there for a long, long time, squirrel hawking was fairly taboo. This was prior to Gary Brewer's book, which <laughs> sort of changed everything. But now I really like to fly feather. And uh, if I wasn't flying feather with the long wing, I'd be flying feather with an occipiter. And I'm sure I will in the future, too. I mean, I'm fairly certain of it. Well, get that magic knee put in and... and uh, well, that's yeah. just a couple months away. So I'm very <laughs> much looking forward to that. And all the, all the bird has to do is make one bad fatal mistake around a bald eagle and... Hello, Mr. Passage Cooper Hawk. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you again. It's been so long since we've last chatted. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and ironically enough, since, I mean, that's what we were both kind of trying to do also. Well, I mean, you, me trying, you actually, you know, doing your thing. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the last time we were in the same place, same time, I mean, you had the Merlins, but then, you know, you were also doing the... The, the passage coop that you had there. I think you molted the bird out, but you didn't end up flying it again the second season. You let uh, it go. I did I get it going just a little bit, and we caught a few head uh, the second season. But then I let her go, and she hung around for months and months and months and months. Mm -hmm. Not terribly shocking. I got a pigeon loft with free flying birds, mm -hmm. uh, but she hung around forever. Uh, eventually, one day she came in close enough that I was able to catch her. I mm -hmm. got I got my hands around her legs. And uh, picked her up, popped the hood on her, brought her in the house, put her on the scale. She sat there calmly like it was old hat. She weighed <laughs> 700 and something grams. Jeez. I don't remember exactly what it was. But that was a bird that I hunted in the 500 gram range. Uh -huh. uh, 515, 520, something like that. But she was over 700 uh, and came into a lure. Hmm. Wow. After That's having been free for you know, many, many months. And she started out as a passage bird. 
Well, and I remember calling you and, you know, asking some questions and things and here and there and, and looking back on it, there's so many things that I can identify that I should have done differently. Of course, I ended up just fattening that bird up and, and letting it go. And, um, you know, I just, like I said, I, uh, finally am just now kind of starting to think that I might have a better foundation, I guess now to try and fly one again at some point, it's still going to probably be a bit before I try another passage coop. But I wanted, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that though, because there's of course just this continuing stigma around flying passage coops and everybody's got their theories. Cause you know, Falconers, they love theories, <laughs> but, um, I mean, do you do anything differently as far as just talking about passage coops now? Do you do anything differently that you have over the, you know, since you started trying to fly them? Or is there anything well, different with your approach? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, way back when, when I was very first getting going, uh, I relied heavily on weight control. Still do, but I really leaned on the birds back, back then. And what happened is you have a bird that's flying at artificially low weight and it just doesn't have the muscle mass and it doesn't have the confidence to tackle bigger quarry. Bigger quarry uh, specifically is cottontails. Uh, our cottontails are no bigger, no smaller than anybody else's. They're all pretty much the same uh, with a few exceptions, really tiny ones out West, but uh, to get a passage Cooper Hawk to catch rabbits is no big feat. Just don't crash its weight. Mm. Keep its weight up as high as you can. Have it under control. Instantaneous lure response. Not sloppy falconry. Not sloppy loose falconry. Controlled, methodical. Same weight, same time, day after day after day after day. And uh, you'll have success with them. And as far as, you know, some of these birds that, I mean, there's, of course, the theories that everybody has, too, of... You know, of course, some birds seem like they're going to be more suited, you know, to falconry. And, oh, yeah, that's and... very true with passage coops. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the places where the differences that you're describing really pop up a lot uh, has to do with pursuing quail. You get a dog point, you uh, flush a quail. Some birds will stand on your glove and not hesitate, not instantly launch off and attack the quail. They're like studying the quail, watching it fly away, and then all of a sudden it clicks in their head. Oh, yeah, I'm here to catch quail. And then it'll take and it'll tell chase the quail and put it in. Usually you can get it on a reflush the second or third time you'll you'll catch that bird. Other Cooper Hawks will instantly flash off the glove and bind to the quail in the air right in front of you. This is a passage bird, not an imprint. Most all the imprints operate that way. But the passage birds, some do, some don't. I can't predict it. Yeah. That's just how that's just how they are. Um, I generally look at a passage Cooper Hawk as a easy to medium grade, difficult bird. I look at the imprint Cooper Hawk is definitely a difficult bird. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, it's, I guess it's really probably no different than a lot of species in that the only way you're going to be able to tell whether or not one is a good candidate is putting in the time, you know, with, with the bird and, and kind of getting to the point where. Yeah. You, you don't know, know till you're through into it. Right. With most Merlins, you can tell the difference between individuals within just a few hours. Mm -hmm. uh, but with Cooper Hawks, it's, it's weeks. It's measured in weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never ran into one uh, that I thought just had to be released, that it was just uh, an unacceptable bird. 
Now, the caveat on that is I don't even bother trapping them after November 1st. It's got to be caught September, October, or I just don't want it. <laughs> Those birds are just too difficult in general, and they more or less never seem to work out. There's going to be some exceptions, of course, but nine out of ten times, fear is going to be the dominant emotion they experience all the time, and it's going to really get in the way of hunting. And uh, unless that's the only bird you have and the only bird you have access to, you're pretty much beating your head with a brick. Yeah. Well, and during that first three weeks, whenever you're working towards that instantaneous lure recall and all the rest of the manning process, I mean, are you showing it bad game or anything or no. anything through that time or anything? No, the last three or four passage groups I had, uh, I went straight from getting them to chase the lure, uh, but they're frantically chasing the lure, mm. you know, not passively coming, but frantically chasing yeah. the lure uh, and show them game and they're on it. Hmm. And do you notice any difference at all between like uh, passage coops that are caught city versus country? You know, boy, I have, I've got a pet theory about that. <laughs> I have no proof. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of tend to think the city caught birds might be a little easier to work with, yeah. just because they have that exposure ahead of time. Yeah, I've got no proof, no evidence, no data, no statistics. Just uh, I don't think anybody does. <laughs> just just a big question mark over my head, but mm -hmm. that's kind of the way I'm leaning right now. Yeah. Well, and I think that's been another one of those general theories, you know, is that that is kind of a little bit better to get one that's at least been kind of somewhat human exposed beforehand. But as you said, I mean, I don't, I, <laughs> I've not flown. Yeah, I don't know, have, I don't have the data to back it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't mind saying something like that mm -hmm. as long as I throw that in there that uh, sure. I can't back it up with jack shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's totally fine. I mean, I don't think, like I said, th this is all just theories anyway. And for whatever reason, people just struggle with passage coops, it seems like more than any other species, you know, and, and I, like I said, I don't know why I, but well, uh, sometimes it's, it's the person that makes the choice to fly a passage coop. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, if I'm just going to broadcast widely here, throw the net wide, uh, it's going to be a family man working a full-time job, and this is his second or third bird after his red tail. And you're really just not suited for it until your kids are grown and gone until your job is not such a struggle uh, when you can set yourself on autopilot do a good job feel good about the job you're doing yeah maybe that that might be the right time yeah. but when you got to put a lot of thought and energy into your career uh, that's probably not the best time to take on a passage coops well and that's a big reason why i haven't again yet <laughs> 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 and I, I will totally throw myself under the bus as being part of that. You know, one of the the things that's being caught in that net right now. I mean, I'm I'm not afraid to admit it. You know, I mean, I uh, it was a good learning experience. So the the one or two times that I've tried, you know, working with with the passage coops, I ended up going ahead and just feeding them up and releasing them because I just like I said for whatever reason. Um, I know I, I think I can think back and make a, and, and recognize a lot of the mistakes I made, but 
I don't want to try it again until I know that I've got the time and consistency to, to yeah, apply the to it. Yeah, the commitment. Mm -hmm. It's, you, you know, that has to be there. A lot of times the guys that succeed at passage coops that are trying them out, their first time swinging the bat, they're in their 60s. You know, they're done working, they're done raising the family. And uh, they may not be exceptionally gifted at falconry, but you know what? They got a superpower. Time. Time <laughs> is their superpower. They can they can put in the time. They can keep the birds in the house. Uh, they can do whatever they need to do, and mm -hmm. it works out for them quite readily. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a local falconer, Kurt Nickmeyer. Great guy. Good falconer. Solid skills. Uh, his first time messing around with Passage Coop, total success. His first time messing around with Passage Merlins, total success but he didn't come into it until he was older in life mm -hmm. and he has that superpower of time yeah and commitment well and, and i think that's an interesting point because there's been a lot of times where i've mentioned like i don't know how a lot of these older guys you know can can get into it and be proficient at all coming into it so late just because of some of the the physical rigors you know that come oh, with yeah. it but um <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, some of them have already had hip and knee replacements and everything, and they haven't even started their apprentice season yet. And you're just like, how are you right. going to? But you remember uh, the last time you came out and visited, I was flying two Merlins. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, that second Merlin wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. It happened to belong to Kurt Nickmeyer, the guy I just mentioned. Oh, okay. And on his very first hunt of the year, this is kind of a funny story. Well, not for him. <laughs> On his very first hunt of the year, we're crossing underneath this uh, commercial-grade electric fence at a dairy farm. And uh, as he was going underneath the fence, the top of his skull doesn't have any hair. The top of his skull hit the hot wire. He was out like a light, fell straight down, broke his leg uh, with a spiral <laughs> fracture. Oh, no. And snapped it in half. Uh, uh so meanwhile, his bird is out flying starlings. So I ended up retrieving that bird for him. We had an apprentice in the in the truck, and uh, he his leg is terribly broken. And uh, we're heading to the hospital to drop him off at the emergency room. And there was a passage red tail on this tree that was really really sweet, and the apprentice really wanted it. So. He's like, oh, yeah, go ahead and throw the trap out. So we threw the trap out <laughs> to catch the bird. <laughs> uh, Kurt was fine with it, but his wife was, she's never really looked at me the same way since. I don't think she was, like, real keen on that idea. He's like, yeah, my husband is facing so, potential leg amputation over here. And so we, uh, we did get him to the, to the ER, and, and the wife was... Uh, uh, she was like, you can leave now. <laughs> <laughs> You've done enough, sir. <laughs> uh, but that bird I was flying, that was his bird. And I ended up flying it the entire first season because oh, uh, he was laid up in a cast all that time. Jeez. Well, the, some of the things we go through, man, it's <laughs> you can't make this stuff up either. I mean, only only fanatical idiots, <laughs> I guess, would uh, would put a bird before a broken you know, more <laughs> freaking like, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Actually, well, he wasn't bleeding out. He did yeah. fine. <laughs> well, I mean, is he still had the leg? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, then, yeah, no harm, no harm, no foul then. <laughs> he's He's been flying Merlins every year since then, too. Oh, that's great. Every year. That's great. Does very, very well at it. Yeah. 
Well, and and one last thing I want to ask you about the whole passage coop thing before we kind of move on to the next thing is, I mean, were you how much time were you spending each day trying to to man and and work? You know, how what were you keeping the the time sessions to, or or were you? Uh, you know what? I don't think I actually kept track of that. Yeah. Um, passage birds they live with me in the house, mm-hmm. so I'm around them twenty four seven. I just don't really keep track of it. Yeah. Uh, short version. Sorry, that's that's not very profound. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, I know whenever I was consulting you about a couple of questions about the one that I had, you know, you were telling me to try to, you know, keep some of the, the manning sessions, you know, within, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes sometimes, sometimes even like half hour, but make sure to do it before you, you know, you feed and stuff, because as soon as you feed, then the bird doesn't really need to have you oh, around, yeah, yeah. you know, right. stuff like that or whatever. So all the manny's up front yeah. before they get fed yeah, and uh, stretch it out as generally as long as you can, as long as you still have the bird's attention. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that hunger wanes and you start losing the bird's attention, pop the hood back on, yeah. put it back on the perch until it's back down to the right weight zone the following day. Gotcha. And then as the bird becomes more and more acclimated, you less and less time out of the hood. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. So the whole point of everything is reduce stress. I will not yeah. let the cat destroy your stuff. <laughs> okay. It's hilarious. <laughs> like you said, everything's a toy. That's, <laughs> that's funny, but no, that's great though, man. Like I said, I, I'm glad that, um, <laughs> glad that everybody still has their their appendages around here and and uh everybody's still having a, a good time you know flying the birds that you're kind of <laughs> in this area <laughs> but um well i mean as far as though i mean one other thing i wanted to ask you too and we and you we didn't even really brush on it but you mentioned you know flying um you know your your chamber goss your chamber finish goss mm-hmm, that you had yeah. earlier what are your thoughts now that you've had a chance to fly, you know, chamber birds versus, you know, the imprints and things? I mean, what do you personally prefer now? Uh, if it's a European bird, I can't imagine flying anything but a chamber bird. It was literally the easiest goshawk I ever flew in my life. Mm. Uh, the breeder's going to be very upset with me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> using using the word easy with his birds he would not like that at all uh, that, that's that's really is just the case well i mean putting uh, another you know a little asterisk mark to that though i mean you also have 40 years experience of dealing with them and things too so well you know, i don't that. think it's so much that i make good decisions but i didn't make bad ones uh-huh. gotcha. <laughs> that that may be a, a fair way to describe it gotcha uh american goshawks i would never fly anything but an imprint and if I live someplace other than Missouri, I would almost certainly be involved in passage ones. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a European bird, I would, I would, I would want a chamber bird. They're just so easy, cooperative, manageable. Uh, no difference at all in their their hunt drive. The bird that I had was a finish. I might have a different opinion if it was a Czech bird, or a Spanish bird, or a German bird. I don't know. I flew a German bird, oh, probably 20 years ago, and uh, it was a problem bird I was trying to correct for somebody else. I failed in that regard, 
Uh, I recommended the guy have the bird euthanized. It was hunting uh, little kids on bicycles. Oh, man. And uh, that was Ooh. his preferred quarry. <laughs> oh, no. So, uh. Uh, as I said, that bird was just beyond my abilities to to remedy. Most of the time when I would get a problem bird from somebody else, I could sort through it fairly quickly and uh, get it back to him in just a month or so. But yeah. that bird, I failed at. Well, it sounds like pretty much anybody would have <laughs> <laughs> well i i certainly had no shortage of game i'll, t- I'll tell yeah. you that and uh you know i was given a 20 something slips a day Jeez. and they were like you know mowed grass industrial park no-brainer slips that the bird should have just sucked up and uh it went for the little kid on the bicycle every time Jeez. Mm-mm-mm. yeah we don't want that definitely don't want that but well, I mean, like I said, I was just curious because I didn't know if you'd even, um, I mean, have you tried any of the uh, the hybridized, you know, goshawks with uh, whether it's a, a North American, European no, hybrid or, or any I, of the European? I don't have any uh, uh, any experience with those. I've seen the American Finnish uh, birds flown. They seem fine, um, like a, a bigger, larger American bird is kind of what they look like. Very, very attractive birds, uh, but I haven't flown one myself. I've just seen other people hunt them, and they did fine. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few of them flown, too, and I think that, I mean, I've never flown a goss yet, uh, but I have seen a, a metric ton of them flown so, so far with a lot of our mutual friends that, that we both know, of course. But. Well, for your for your first go-around, I would certainly encourage you to get a chamber uh, European bird. Hmm. And I'm a big fan of Lance Christensen's birds, uh, not just because that's the bird that I flew, but I've seen a lot of other people fly his. And the way he raises them is very, very unique and uh, um, takes a lot of time. He charges about a thousand bucks more than everybody else, too. <laughs> well, but if you've been there and you've seen his setup and you've you've seen the sorts of things that he does with these birds, you can see why. Well, and understandably so, too, because you've got to house a bird for that much longer. If you're chamber-raised bird, it's that much more food. And like you said, can't put a money – you can't put like a, a monetary value on time sometimes also. Yeah, That's, well, time and expertise. Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, what he has is he has a bank of uh, camera screens. Uh, there must have been 30 different screens he was looking at. He has multiple cameras in every chamber, so he's able to look – at all the different groups of birds that are interacting together. So in one chamber, at one age, he'll have both parents with chicks in the nest. The The parents are doing all the feeding, all the raising, all like that. And then when one of the offspring begets to get a little bit too frisky with dad, they'll attack dad, the smaller of the two. Uh, then he pushes dad into a new chamber. And then dad is safe. And he does this through these uh, levers and pulleys and sliding doors and all this sleight of hand stuff that does not involve a dip net. Hmm. So the bird goes off into a different chamber. And then when the level of aggression rises to where they chase the mother off as well, both both the young birds start attacking then. Then they get rid of mom and they bring in other immature birds of the same sex. So then you got a, a cluster of female Finnish goshawks that are all together. One of them is going to become the alpha. 
whenever the alpha gets too big for britches and starts totally dominating all the other birds, that alpha gets put into another chamber with other alpha birds. So they're in this constant state of flux where the big kid on the block gets knocked off his soapbox mm-hmm. and they're constantly jockeying for top dog. Yes. And, so one doesn't always have the the time to really assert that level of of, of dominance and uh and exactly. attitude. Exactly. And it, yeah. it basically it Tom Colson, good God, decades ago, uh, they did something not terribly different with Harris Hawks and they created you know, a great line of hunting birds that way, you know, uh, the, what they learn in that chamber is invaluable. And for Lance, the number is about a thousand bucks more, <laughs> you know, the amount of food they're eating is probably only about a hundred dollars worth of food. Uh, but knowing when to, when to jockey, what bird into what chamber that's priceless. Yeah. It's kind of like the, uh, the thing that you see floating around where the dude comes in, repairs the boat and then spends about 10 minutes and charges, you know, <laughs> however many thousands of dollars or whatever to, to move one pin here or whatever in this engine. And they're like, Oh, I, you only did 10 minutes worth of work, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's no lifetime of yeah, experience. Yeah, to to, know exactly. What to do, which, right. Yeah. Like yeah. what, what to hit where and tap where. And I have gotten a chance to see, a handful of breeding projects now, not just in the U S but also like, you know, going to Falcon Muse in the UK and, and seeing how a lot of these yeah, guys I went in Hillary Gilbert's place. And yeah. I got a nice tour there. Yeah. And, and seeing how all these guys do this different stuff. And I don't know how these guys do it. I, as far as just, you know, the, the amount of time, <laughs> effort and energy that goes into some of these breeding projects. It's, it's amazing. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it's not for me. It's not how I want to spend my time. Yeah. But I appreciate the hell out of these other guys doing it. And I don't mind paying them for their efforts. Yeah. Well, it's the same with equipment makers and anything else. Right. I don't I don't mind paying a couple hundred bucks for a, for a really nice hood from someone that's been doing it for as long as some of these guys have and yeah. been able to avoid burnout. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's cool though, man. I, um, I'll take that in, in, into consideration. I, I came real close. I, I I almost ended up with the goshawk a couple of seasons ago, and my septic system decided, as <laughs> I've said before, that 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 wouldn't be a very good idea. So uh, anyway, um, maybe someday I don't know. We'll see. But uh, but that's cool. I mean i I want to real quick though before we go into anything else. Do I? I don't know if you have really mentioned it a lot before, or and I, I know that you haven't as far as you know, this type of format, but before we go any further, I would like to find out more about how you got into falconry, you know, all those years ago and kind of what, I don't know, sparked your interest and, um, you know, just kind of discuss that for a little bit before we move on to the next thing. Okay. It's pretty unremarkable. (laughs) Uh, kind of grew up a farm boy, uh, on a farm that really wasn't farmed. Uh, my dad stopped the family tradition. He went to work for the telephone company. Uh, so I had surrounded by cornfields and and uh, just grew up shooting shit as a kid. <laughs> you know, that's what farm boys do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so lots and lots of hunting. So I was a hunter for years and years and years before I ever got, became uh, involved in falconry. And there was a lot of hawks uh, that would land in the trees uh around us you know where we lived because we're in a 
basically a floodplain. And uh, there aren't trees everywhere, but there happen to be trees in our yard. There was a white-faced red-tailed hawk uh, that hunted from that tall, lofty perch in our yard a lot. And uh, that sort of uh, sparked an interest in raptors. Years later, I had an art exhibit at a bank. Most of the stuff that I'd painted was birds of prey and falcons and eagles and whatnot like that. And uh, a falconer contacted me. He didn't buy in my art, <laughs> but he uh, he lit an addiction in my soul. Uh, uh, a year later, I was flying a bird and have ever since. That's nuts. Yeah, and it really has really shocked me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because falconry is such a an art, you know, to, to so many people, but it really has amazed me. The more people that I talk to, how many people are artists, you know, that are also falconers, musicians, you know, that, that artsy side There's of the There's a lot of hurt people that are falconers too. <laughs> yeah. Snake handlers mm -hmm. and lizards and stuff like that. There, that's, mm -hmm. that's a very common thing as well. Sure. And a lot of them are artists as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I guess it's just because it's that same side of the brain that that kind of helps us operate to whatever degree. I don't know. That's another one of those things where I don't have any evidence of. It's just a or a you know a proof, however you want to put it. But it's just something I've noticed, and I've you know I've talked to a lot of people now, and it really is just amazing how many people have this extra artistic bone in their body, other than just well, it's kind of a balance between science and art. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have your science component where you analyze a problem, you come up with a hypothesis, you apply it, you test your results, and if it works, you continue it. If it does not work, you abandon that and you go for a new hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, the art is your ability to interpret subtle behavioral communications from your bird. It's your ability to interpret things. Mm -hmm. It's your sensitivity to what you're feeling the bird is experiencing and what the bird is learning. That's kind of how I've always looked at it. Yeah. It's a balance of science and art. You do it all the way one way without the other, you're not going to succeed very much. You're not going to get past basic birds. Right. Because if you don't learn to the subtle nuances of how to read a bird one way and you just go by numbers and everything else. And yeah, you, you're sometimes you're, you gotta yeah, have both. Yeah. You gotta have both for sure. Well, that's cool. Well, I mean, it, I don't consider anybody's journey into this unremarkable by any stretch, but I mean, I, I think it's cool though that, I mean, I always like talking to other guys too, that did have some degree of like hunting history, you know, before getting into this. Cause I, I didn't have any, you know, I mean, I, I didn't have a hunting background or anything before I got into this. And so, like I said, I always like finding out how people get into this because everybody's path, even though there's a lot of similarities, there's always subtle differences. Yeah. So that's cool, though. I mean, if you grew up that way and, and just kind of fell into it, you know, so be it. You know? Yeah, uh, I did. I just fell into it. Uh, there's there's no better way to describe it. I, I did, too. <laughs> like a lot of guys do, you know. But no, that's awesome, though, man. Like I said, I, uh, I I wanted to at least get that covered before we we switched to, you know, one of the main things, though, that, that I w did want to really kind of go into depth some during this conversation, though, which was 
you know, I mean, you're, you're an author as well. You've written, a, you know, a few books now. And, you know, I mean, out of curiosity, what inspired you to want to write some of these books? I mean, I, I, I always admire people that want to take on that endeavor, too. Because okay, it's a uh, it's a big undertaking. It's not an answer you like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I have a feeling I already know the answer to a degree. Okay, uh, because it's a, the same reason that other people that I know have written books also. Okay, but uh, go for it, man. <clears throat> okay, uh, the first book was the Imprincipitor. Mm -hmm. I wrote it in the uh, mid to late nineties. Uh, I'd already trained quite a number of uh, goshawks and Cooper hawks. Uh, at least one sharp shin by that time. They were all more or less exemplary birds. You know, they all, th this is the worst way to describe it, but it's the most clinical way I can say it. Uh, the Cooper Hawks were typically killing in the 400 head of season range. Uh, the Goshawks were in the mid 200s. My best ever with an immature Goshawk was 270. Uh, my best year flying two birds combined was like 686 head. So I'm just using numbers. That describes one very narrow, in fact, shallow part of, of their success as falconry birds. Um, but it's the only way I could uh, describe it quickly enough within the format. Mm. Is that a good enough excuse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'd had a lot of success, uh, used to attend all the NAFA meets year after year after year, would never turn anyone down. Uh, there were times when we had 50 and 60 people in the field at one time, and the bird is flying from the top of someone's head to the top of someone's head to the top of someone's head <laughs> and catching multiple head of game in front of crowds like this. So what happened is I received an awful lot of attention. And before you think, oh, that's that's wonderful, such an ego, <laughs> <laughs> there's a cost. And that cost is your phone never stops ringing mm -hmm. day and night, week after week, month after month. It was incessant. I changed my number a dozen times. <laughs> I begged my friends never, ever give out my number, but they always did. <laughs> kind of makes me question how good of a friend they were. Uh so basically, people are just driving, driving us crazy, you know, because it's not just me. It's my wife and we got a young child at the same time. And it was, uh, it was a very trying and difficult time. Hey, don't get me wrong. I want to help people, but I need to sleep too. <laughs> and I would unplug the phone in order to sleep at night because literally you'd hang up with one and there'd all be somebody, the phone would be ringing with somebody else already on it. It was just... Uh, Nearly impossible to deal with. So I started writing the book sort of as a result of traveling around and doing lectures uh, here, there, wherever. Uh, the sort of the bottom line was that when I was in England, I was given these like four hour long super marathon lectures. And it was a lot of information to lay out on any human being verbally. It was a lot to start from absolute zero. Okay, these are asocial creatures. They don't love you. Don't think they do. They don't. Start with that and end up uh, talking about more sophisticated, advanced aspects of your relationship with your bird.
so the book came out of all that. And then that book was uh, quite a, uh, an ordeal in our married life as well. In that I went to uh, a couple of publishers of Falconry books and uh, they said, oh yeah, we, we've heard of you. Good game hawker, saw you talk in Texas, you know, this sort of thing. But what you're writing about, it's just a little too controversial. We just don't really want to go there. <laughs> of course, now uh, it's the status quo. It's not controversial at all. But at the time, it was quite controversial. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, uh, publishers were eager to publish the book, but they wanted editorial uh, control over it. And they were going to take out the heart and soul of what actually makes it work, which is a balance of a whole bunch of different facets. Uh, and then it would have failed. It, it, it would have failed. Um, there was one group of individuals that was all behind me, 100%. And that was credit card companies. They couldn't wait to have me sign up for another credit card. <laughs> so I took out a dozen credit cards and charged, gosh, how much was that? $23,000 in one day on uh, a variety of credit cards. Uh, it was enormously high risk on my part. But at this point, I felt like I had to get it out there because I wanted to help people. Uh, I hope that I would be able to break even. We lived in a rental trailer <laughs> at the time, and I had a, a very young infant boy, Nicholas, and it was just an enormous financial risk. But like, what am, what are they going to do? Take my truck that breaks down every half mile? <laughs> yeah, what, what, what can they get from me? Yeah. So anyhow, uh, uh, ended up breaking even completely within six months and ended up making a few bucks on the, the opposite end. But that was never the, the goal or the purpose. The goal and the purpose was really just to help people out and maybe ease up my phone, my phone time, ease, ease back on that. Yeah. My suspicion was correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, well, and, and of course we, we already kind of know each other a little bit. Um, you know, I, I know enough from, you know, you and then other guys that, um, you know, have written books and stuff too, that, I mean, that usually is the main purpose. I mean, rather than field a, hundred billion phone calls, messages, whatever the, the case. It's I just, know, that's the most shallow reason I could yeah. possibly come up with. But that's <laughs> well, the God's honest truth. Well, it, you know what, though? I mean, it's reality. And I wouldn't want my phone ringing a hundred billion times a, a day either. I mean, why not just go ahead and compile everything that you would tell somebody on the phone, if not more? Well, that's exactly what it was. And put it out there and then hope that you, only, you stop fielding, you know, a hundred or well, so a day and just go down to about occasionally a dozen. <laughs> I get a phone call now uh, from someone that's interested in writing a falconry book. And mm -hmm. I generally always start the same way. Make sure you have something to say. Don't write a book, just write a book because you want to write a book. <laughs> write a book when you got something to say, you know. Theoretically, something new. Even if your book is about history, if you've discovered some new historical fact or angle, write about that. Mm -hmm. That's that's worth reading. You know, regurgitating the same old stuff every time. 
probably not worth reading and you're probably going to have pretty limited success on it. Sure. Um, the last guy that I really strong armed into writing a book uh, was Jeremy Bradshaw. Yeah, Jer, yeah. The, the Passage Merlin. Yeah. I, um, I literally twisted his arm behind his back to get him to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very happy with this product. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm real, real happy with it. It's a great book. Yeah. No, I'm, that's fantastic, though. I mean, I, honestly, though, I, on the surface, I know to you that might seem like a shallow reason, though, but I mean, that would be as good of a reason as any for me to, to have motivation to do much. I mean, if there's a demand, I mean, you're, you, and plus, I mean, it was a good gauge probably for you to be able to, to somewhat at least predict some degree of demand for it. Because if you're getting all these billions of phone calls and stuff, I mean, you know, at least some of those people are going to want to buy, you know, a book. Well, and stuff, so. uh, I didn't think of that at the time. I basically thought about $22,000 on yeah. credit cards. <laughs> well, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> I, I will tell you a story after we get done recording, but I can relate to that. And it's not, uh, it's not fun. It's not a fun thing to worry about. And uh, I admire that, though, someone that's willing to take a chance to get something out, not only to to help people out, but, you know, just to do something, you know, to do something about whatever situation they're in. I mean, that's not everybody's got not got the guts to do that. Well, when you're facing total financial ruin, guess what? That's not ruin. Yeah, that doesn't. You know, they're not going to cut off your leg. Yeah. <laughs> they're not going to repossess an organ. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just financial ruin. Mm-hmm. And frankly, at the time, I had very little to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a busted ass pickup truck that was next <laughs> to worthless. <laughs> My wife, I think Nick was born then, or he, he was a bun in the oven at the time. I can't really recall. It's been some time. Uh, but no, financial ruin, if you don't have a lot to lose, isn't as bad as it sounds. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It was real pressure. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was real pressure. Yeah. I can imagine. Like I said, I, I can, I can relate somewhat to that for sure. I um, have had similar type of situation and it's not, it's not fun having to stare in the eye, you know, like trying to figure out how you're going to make the payments and, and not only that, but like you said, just avoid that complete financial ruin because you took a risk. And, well, you yeah, know. it was a risk. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, I mean, luckily it paid off, though. And, um, you know, I mean. <laughs> well, the, the big payoff on that particular book wasn't uh, finance. The big payoff with that book was just helping people yeah. all over the world. Sure. Sure. And it really is an all over the world thing because, I mean, there's having been to a few different countries now, everybody <laughs> talks about for lack of better terminology a lot of people refer to it as like the modern recipe you know and and whether or not that's a good word to use or not i mean it is what it is but that that is the next topic of conversation that i want to talk about though because because i mean it has been some time since you've written the book and i am curious i mean nothing else for myself but I know a lot of other people probably are curious too as to having written the book and it has been some time since you've written it and you've had a lot of birds and a lot of falconry since then. What, what if anything, is there a difference in mindset on as far as things that you've 
written now and as part as opposed to like or things that you've written before as opposed to what you do now i mean is there any different difference in mindset that you have from what you've written previously well i haven't written any additional books because mm-hmm. i really haven't had any additional original ideas mm-hmm. uh I, I don't have anything to say the biggest difference i would like if i could go back and correct something mm-hmm. it would be uh poo poo and all chamber birds Back about, say, in the early 2000s, uh, people were starting to put together chamber bird systems. And it was early. It was crude. It was basically throw a bunch of birds in a shed and see what comes out the other end. And largely, it was crap. It was birds that refused slips, that didn't like to hunt, that had hang-ups with all sorts of terrible fears. So that's what I wrote about in the imprint books. I was, that was the state of the art at the time. Today, they have a lot more sophisticated uh, management techniques for for handling these birds. And the chamber bird of today is nothing like the chamber bird of 30 years ago. It, they're just apples and oranges in a, a completely unfair comparison. So that would be one regret I have. But, of course, I can't really look forward in time and write about what hasn't happened yet. <laughs> well, I mean, that is the beautiful thing about a format, say, like a podcast, for example, though, where you're able to actually sit and discuss and, and not to say that this conversation is going to be imprint except or three or anything. But I mean, I wanted to at least discuss this some because I know if it was me and of course, I've not written a book, but if it was me and I had hypothetically put a written work out there. I, I know for a fact that there would probably be some things that I would be doing different 30 years, 20 years later, sure. you know, from what I wrote in a book. So, I mean, I wanted to, to talk for a little bit about it and ask about some of this stuff because I figured surely there was probably at least something, you know. Well, I'm not the same man I was, you know, uh, in, in the late 90s, mm-hmm. you know, on many different levels. Sure. Uh the last goshawk I flew was that chamber-raised finish bird. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best goshawks I'd ever flown in my life. Uh, this bird was designed for long, distant pursuits. Uh, it had dozens of flights on pheasants that went over a mile. And it wasn't flap, flap, glide, follow behind till it puts in and then pound on it, you know, on the ground like a red tail would. It was high-speed wing flapping, 69 miles per hour GPS measured, balls to the wall, (laughs) all-out chase. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very impressive example of physicality, you know, athleticism just through the roof. A very, very impressive bird. Uh, My first season, I didn't break triple digits. I was either in the 80s or 90s. I really can't recall which right now. Most of what it caught was feather. So I was doing high flute and stuff, uh, waterfowl, pheasant, quail, uh, wild chucker in the mountains of Nevada. Very, very impressive stuff. That last American bird I flew, uh, it caught 270 head its first year. They were largely cottontails. There was some quail mixed in. There was some waterfowl mixed in, but it wasn't nearly as impressive a bird 
is that Finberg was on long pursuits. Um, did a lot of studies with GPS since that thing has come out just on my own. And uh, the Finberg would hardly ever break 40 miles an hour. In fact, the magic number seemed to be 38 time after time after time after time when it was flying at, at rabbits. And it didn't matter if it was cottontails or jackrabbits out west, 38 miles an hour. That was how fast it flew. Pheasants, 69 miles an hour. Never broke 70, but I had a couple of times, three times maybe, where it got up to 69 miles an hour. And it was kind of interesting in the way that it worked at speed. It would start off on the glove, of course, and build up as quickly as it could. By the time it, it got to about 300 yards, it was at its top speed. But it took 300 yards for a 1,200-gram Cossack uh, to get up to speed. And it would maintain that speed for a couple hundred yards, and then it would actually decrease its speed until right before the pheasant would flare its wings and drop straight down. And then it would have another burst of speed where it would pick up another 15 to 20 miles an hour of additional speed at the end. Mm. And this is like hard pump and wing flap and zero gliding going on. This is like the bird... It was really, really fit, given it all it had. But that was its strategy, time after time after time after time. Build up slow to 300, max out for a couple hundred more yards. Then it would decrease its speed until the put in, and then there was a big push at the end. And that was that was very interesting stuff. Flying that same Passage Cooper Hawk uh, that we had talked about earlier on Cottontails, it caught 40-something rabbits that first year, and it was never uh, go more than the mid-40s. But it would go 40, 45 miles an hour on most cottontail flights, fly the same exact field with a goshawk, 36, 38 miles an hour. Just well, time after time after time after time. Well, I'm sure the flights only lasted like seconds, too. I mean, they probably didn't last very uh, long either, did they? Well, it was a lot like flying jackrabbits with a goshawk. Yeah. There was a lot of buck and bronco ride sort of affair. A lot of them would break loose. The Cooper Rock would jump up, fly it down, suck it up again, you know, and, you know, we're back at the fights. Basically, it just had to hang on to it until I could get there. Sure. Which is exactly what it was like flying American goshawks at jackrabbits, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Uh, they weren't killing them. They were just catching them and hold on till you get there. The finished bird, it killed jacks. You would get there and it'd be dead. <laughs> but of course, there's a big size difference between the two creatures. Of course. Of course. Well, that's very, like I said, it's very interesting to hear. And like I said, that's one of the big reasons why I wanted to have this discussion was, you know, for that very reason I wanted to to talk some about this and also ask you a couple questions too, because I know we, we know of course, a lot of the, a lot of mutual people and a lot of those guys do love flying goshawks and, and stuff. And the one, one of the main things I wanted to ask you about was mainly revolving around something that you already brushed on briefly, which was the topic of, of fear, you know, in these, in these birds, especially with, these imprint birds and, and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of guys that are perfectly fine with taking a little bit older ISs in the nest, you know, that are kind of past what you would ideally describe in the book, you know, is that, that fear stage, you know, they've already kind of are able to you know, have fear and things like that and do have fear. 
there's a lot of guys that think that they tame down pretty easy and make good falconry birds and stuff later. Um, and don't necessarily completely subscribe to the whole you have to get a bird or an IS before that, uh, you know, that fear stage and stuff. Well, it, so it, it depends on what you want as an outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, I mentioned I was a different person now than I was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I only talked about where I was now. Sure. I talked about my European goshawk that I, I, I really loved a lot and she flew really, really hard and all that. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about how I was as a, as a younger man. And then it was all about stacking up dead bodies. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wanted to soar back by the end of the day because I had corpses in the back of my game vest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I wanted lots of that. And the best way to get that is with an imprint. Mm-hmm. There's just no debate, no discussion. Someone might raise a finger and say, well, I, uh, and I'm like, bullshit. I don't fucking care what you got to say. <laughs> There's no way anything is going to compare to an imprint mm. for stacking up dead bodies. Mm. Now, is it going to be uh, easy to make a bird that is good mannered like that? No, it's going to be very technical to make a bird that's good mannered that catches game like that. But at that age, that's what I wanted. And I can look around and see a lot of the younger falconers, you know, and they they got that, you know, kill, kill, kill thing going on, too. And uh, by and large, I try to encourage it, you know, by and large. Uh, but there's like little subtle things that, you know, I kind of at this stage in my life, I really I want the total package. I want the bird that flies its balls off. Mm. You know, I want a bird that just flies, 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 flies. And I'm a little bit less concerned about stacking up the dead bodies. You know, sure. Uh, I know it sounds like they're in opposition to one another, but not really. Uh, one of the last, the, the very last goshawk I flew, never mantled, never carried. You know how easy it would be for a 1,200-gram bird to fly off with a friggin' bobwhite quail? Very easily. Yeah. Effortless would yeah. be the word. Yeah. Effortless. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, a bird that never carries and all like that. Uh, there's a lot of math involved with weight control and things like that. But there's also trust that's involved. Yeah. No, I, like I said, I just was curious because... You know, I've I've been able to see as as I said before. I mean, I've been able to see a lot of goshawks flown now, and part of that is also knowing how they were raised, or sure. you know, everything before that. And you know, I've seen goshawks, North Americans that were taken, you know, almost and not like brancher stage, but I mean, pretty old, you know, in the nest. Seen some taken as you know, oh, full downy so chicks, sure. you know, of course, and things like that. <clears throat> and you know, I mean, there's you're still able to, you know, to uh, in a lot of those cases, you know, tame down and and um, you know have still a really nice goshawk either way. But I didn't know, like I said, if there was any difference in. But I mean, that pretty much answers my question. You know, as far as to, you know, just kind of it's it's more of a mindset you know, type of thing as far as... Well, it depends you know. on what you want. Yeah, right. You know, uh, I want to have a good experience camping in and catching stuff with my bird, and I want to have really high-quality flights with my bird now. Mm-hmm. The 25-year-old Mike 
I just want a dead shit in my, in my vest. <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. wanted to, uh, I just wanted to fill the freezer, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, the best way to do that is with a, with a straight imprint. If you're taking older birds, uh, every once in a while, someone is going to have a really successful experience like that. Most time they're going to fail. Most people are going to fail at that. And that's one of the things about riding is you're not riding to the exceptional falconer that wants to try something a little risque Mm -hmm. and experiment and explore a new area. Mm -hmm. You're riding to the exact opposite person. Yeah. You're riding to the bottom of the barrel, lowest common denominator, Neanderthal motherfucker walking the face of the earth. (laughs) That's who you're riding to. You're Mm -hmm. riding to the kid that ate the crayons. (laughs) Okay. The glue eater. That's who you're riding to. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you write exclusively to the elite guy, he's going to understand it anyhow. Sure. But you're going to lose everybody else along the way. Sure. No, I get it. And no, it makes total sense. And um, I understand that. It, like I said, I understand the mindset, you know, as far as, yeah, you just want to make it as foolproof, you know, as you can for, you know. That's a yeah. good word to use as yeah. any. Yeah. yeah. Whenever you're writing a how-to type mm-hmm. manuscript, you got to write to the lowest common denominator yep. and it has to be made as simple in as small bites as possible. Makes total sense. And anytime you vary out of that, you know, you're really not writing to the common man anymore. You're, yeah. you're, you're writing to the elite gifted person. Yeah. In which case, you know, a lot of times those people don't necessarily need a how-to book. They period. don't need it at all. Right, exactly. So no, they don't. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, and, you know, sticking the same note before we, or same kind of vein of conversation before we, we move on though. I mean, is there anything else though that you can think of that, or is it still kind of, um, you know, for the most part, is it still, I mean, there's nothing really you would, else you would really change at all or, you know, make a, addendums to or anything? Uh, I think most of the stuff that I had put forth back then is still relevant today. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there's probably going to be some changes in falconry in the near future. Mm-hmm. I think the, the future improvements uh, on the game catching end is going to, I think it's going to be through hack, some form of hack. Mm-hmm. Uh I think we as a group have pretty much explored the age you take the bird from right out of the egg all the way through a passage bird. I I think that's pretty much been pretty thoroughly explored. What has not been thoroughly explored, at least in the United States, is hack. When I was in Spain, they've been hacking birds for hundreds of years, for four and five generations of of falconers in the same family uh they really got it going on there and i think in the u.s when occipiters begin to evolve and and we begin to see new revelations and new techniques i bet it's going to be through hack some form of hack might not be a wild hack might be a tame hack don't really know that's the future that's unknown but the bet money says it's going to be right there in in that realm. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. You know, I mean, it's briefly mentioned in a lot of books, kind of like your writings or even just, you know, by word of mouth. I mean, there's well, a lot my, of guys. My in- hack experience is just baby level. Yeah. You know, I've, I've hacked a handful of birds out. Uh, 
I've seen a few other people have hacked birds out in very urban environments, and they get a very different bird than one that's hacked out in the country. I bet. Uh, one of the biggest criteria that determines the type of experience the bird has is metal arcs. If these acipiters are hacked out in a field that has lots of metal arcs in it, they spend most of their time chasing these birds, putting them in, and they escape because there's no dog there to point it. There's no human there to reflush it. They're just, they're going to fly it hard. And metal arcs uh, have that uh, that starling type of wing beat to them mm -hmm. that really excites the acipiters. They chase them hard. They build muscle. They put them in and they do it again and again. And again, all day long. At the end of half, you get a bird with rock-hard breast muscles on it where you, you're you really not reducing its weight at all to go hunting. It's been hunting. It's ready right now. Uh, the guys that are hacking birds in cities, they don't have that at all. They end up with a bird that has medium breast muscle built, put on its keel. keel. And that's because they're just flying around. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is they figure out what bird feeders are and they start <laughs> yeah. making rushes at bird feeders and splattering birds into picture windows. And then they hop down on the ground and eat them there. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's probably one of the worst things that can, can occur, but the difference between rural and urban hacks is pretty profound in the results that you get. But that's the one species that determines the big difference. It's not jackrabbits. It's not quail. It's metal arcs. Hmm. Huh. I would have never thought of that either. But yeah, and I mean, as far as the urban stuff, I mean, the the starlings and sparrows and parks and backyards and things like that, it would make sense that, yeah, those birds that are hacked in urban environments probably wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about super short, ultra right. ambush type, type uh, stuff. Reno, Nevada probably has more California Valley quail than sparrows. Certainly it has more valley quail than pigeons or any other songbird that you'd want to throw a stick at. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of valley quail that are walking through housing projects and through subdivisions and through backyards nonstop all day long. And the birds hacked in that environment don't seem to be particularly keen on chasing quail. Metalarks seem to be the what produces the best birds. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I can't, I don't have an answer for every question. Yeah, yeah. That's one of those. I don't have an answer for you'd think, Oh, quail would be even more exciting than chasing a metal arc, but I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe not if they're able just to walk around and just walk undercover all the time or whatever the case is. Well, you know, who knows? maybe that's it. Maybe they don't do long extended pursuits like they do with larks. Yeah. You know, yeah, that that's a theory. I don't think it's an answer, but it's a, a good a theory as any. Well, and that's that's another we'll just add to the long list of falconer theories that <laughs> we don't so, know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and as far as I know, you, you know, have thought about doing some other projects and things. I mean, I know I've I've also gotten some advice from you before with, uh, you know, Sharpies and things like that, too. But uh I don't know. Like I, what I, what I did talk to you about once and what I do admire is that you don't like writing about certain things unless you feel like you've flown all the different types of species, subspecies, everything else. That's, I mean, is there anything left that you think that, 
you would like to fly or, or potentially put together another written work for or anything or uh not so much in falconry uh i've been working on a fiction novel it's been a lot of fun just make shit up as you go along <laughs> right it's, it, it's fun mm-hmm. it doesn't involve facts or statistics or, sure. or anything like that but you whenever just... you're talking about falconry <laughs> uh if you're putting an idea out there well you, it better be tested forward backwards and inside out mm-hmm. you better know what you're saying yeah because you're gonna put you're gonna get slapped you know in your place really quickly yeah because there's lots of really really intelligent people involved in the sport I'm glad that you have been able to, if nothing else, find another avenue, I guess, of just pure fun as far as writing and and things like that, though. And, you know, I really do want to read that whenever you're, uh, you know, getting ready to publish or have published. And I think that'll be pretty fun to read. Like I said, I was telling you, I've got a couple other friends that that have um, been able to have some of their sci-fi fantasy novels and things like that published. And um, it was cool being able to, it, it's it's cool whenever you get a chance to read novels like that from people that you know also, just because kind of like you were saying, whenever you're chuckling as you're writing, you're also chuckling as you're, as you're reading because you can tell what aspects of someone's personality came up with that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun to do. Uh, I sure enjoy it. I kind of, um, have found it to be real creative in far, as far as making shit up goes, you know, I, I found that that's been a real creative outlet. My, I've done artwork for decades and decades, sculptures, oil paintings, watercolors, all sorts of things like that. Uh, but the writing creativity is, has certainly been the most, uh, the most entertaining. I, I mean, I'm literally giggling, uh, is I'm typing shit up because <laughs> it's just so outrageous, uh, but still believable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah, I know my one buddy, he wrote one years and years ago. And as I was reading that book, I was just laughing just because I know how screwed up mentally he is anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just funny just reading because I'm like, yep, that's that's him. You know, same with uh, the other friend I was telling you about. And. Yeah, no, that's good times though. At least, at least you find ways to to stay creative and, and busy during all this spare time that you have during this thing called retirement. Well, and, during the yeah, during the during the not the falconry season, the rest of the time, uh, yeah. yeah, it goes by fairly slowly. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But well, I mean, if nothing else, like I said, it's it's something else that you can do with your time, and and um, sometimes things are better if they're kind of savored and go, go a little bit slower, you know, with, with things like that. But, uh, but yeah, the only other thing I wanted to ask you before we, we kind of start to wrap up here is that I wanted to ask you about Vigilas. Cause I know that was a, a whole chapter and kind of a, a big thing that you covered in, in print exhibitor two and, and stuff also and you know i mean i know that you've got one in the in the back room hanging out and uh, i just too yeah <laughs> well i mean is that still kind of your your go-to breed obviously or is it uh, do you have you tried anything ever like in the last handful of years that's that no a bit actually or? my first bird dog uh was a vizsla and i've kind of stuck with him ever since 
Uh, I'm not making any claims they're better than anything else. They're adequate. They 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 work with my birds pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly didn't initiate the Vizsla in falconry. Uh, far as I know, Bill Murphy in California was the first guy to really advocate for him a lot. And uh, he bred dogs for many, many years. Um, when I first uh, decided I wanted to go down the whole bird dog avenue, a buddy of mine said, uh, stay away from a lot of the established breeds because you got a whole lot of Bubba and Theo throwing their dogs together in the backyard and we'll, uh, we'll make puppies. And um, the more uncommon breeds, they're probably a lot more careful about breeding what male to what female for what desirable traits. And they're doing things intentionally rather than out of convenience. And uh, I ended up picking Vizsla out of a magazine in the back of Gundog magazine. Got my uh, puppy in from North Dakota and have kind of been running them dogs ever since. Yeah, I and as you know, I, mean, I have a couple as well, and and I think if I had it to do over again for where we're at and for what I'm doing, you know, it, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Of course, I don't regret getting because I, I love the breed as well. I mean, they're it's <laughs> they they can be a little much at times, uh, but it, at the same time, it's hard to beat the the house, you know, the household aspect of them. I think and. Um, you know, had a we had more feathers still and and bigger fields to run where I'm at, it'd probably still be my my top choice. But you know, I've also gotten dachshunds recently and, and kind of converted to to that a little bit. Yeah, and, I've uh, seen a guy, uh, Tyler Slade, and he's got this little uh, uh, cocker mm-hmm. or a spaniel dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not sure we I even went down the right road going with pointers you know for all these years mm-hmm. uh the little flushing dog seems to be just a tremendous advantage mm. yeah and that's interesting that's why i wanted to ask you because i didn't know if if it's just still to this day just your favorite breed because of just that's what your experience is or if there's anything that you wish you would have gotten into differently or no uh the little spaniels sir are sure are intriguing uh, but these dogs should last me until I'm done with falconry, until mm. I'm I'm just too old to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's cool, though. I mean, it's nice to have stuck with the breed for, for this long and have that familiarity. And, and uh, you know, I know you've had some good dogs. Yeah. yeah uh, they're, they're very versatile, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, on one day I hit a field around here and they're not going to really range much more than two or 300 yards. Mm-hmm. Last fall, uh, we was up in Wyoming hunting sage grouse and they were running three quarters of a mile. Mm-hmm. I mean, day after day after day, we're running big. Yeah. Uh, maybe not as big as the setters, uh, but three quarters of a mile is a hell of a cast. Yeah. And like I said, they're with their energy levels and their abilities i mean i just don't you know how it is i mean like like i said hindsight 2020 whenever i got my first vigla what attracted me to them was because they're one of the first breeds that were originally bred for falconry sure, and, and sure. so on and so forth you do the reading and you know enough at that point 
to be dangerous and, (laughs) and, you know, you, you think you're making the right decision, but you don't think about, you know, and I've discussed this before, but you don't think about the, the other factors and, um, you know, knowing what I know now, it would have been smaller to go, or it would have been better to go with a smaller breed, you know, for the fields and things that I have, because a dog that's like visual size or bigger, you know, is going to burn up a field real fast, you know, and, and a lot of times, your bird's not going to be in the best position depending on what you're flying and things like that. And had I taken all these different things into consideration, I maybe would have just went ahead and gone the dachshund route to begin with, but I still love my Vigilis, you know, they're, they're sweethearts and sometimes they're a little <laughs> over affectionate at times, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I was just curious if there was anything else that you, you know, you thought you might try or, you know, if it's just kind of too late in your mind to, Oh, it's too late for me. <laughs> the, the the dogs I have now, you know, saving some sort of tragedy, uh, they'll they'll last me till I'm done with falconry. Yeah, you know they're 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 going to be uh, they're the right age. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Well, cool. Like I said, I didn't know if you had any addendums as far as the as far as the Vigla breed goes, or if that was just kind of your your general thoughts on on that. Well, they, but uh, they've worked out real well for me. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, they're they're a hard breed to beat as far as the rest of life, you know, for sure. At least that's my humble opinion, for whatever that means, which is probably nothing. But anyway, you know, <laughs> I, I I like them a lot too. I love them, but but yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you know we've we've covered a lot of what I I really wanted to cover as far as you know the different aspects of of the writing and you know the different things like that, but. Before we go, I mean, I do want to get one more, you know, really good story from you and, okay. you know, whatever your your favorite is. I know you've got 40 years to, to draw from and <laughs> okay. it can be can be here's, hard, but <laughs> here's here's my favorite human training story. <laughs> you know, you write you write a how to book, you're you're training humans. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not really training birds, you're training people to train birds. Yeah. Uh, so I'm down in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, flying quail with uh, Tyler. And he's got that uh, that male imprint American bird that he flew, you know, so well. And yeah. hash brown, hash browns. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And uh, of course, the bird just caught quail after quail after quail after quail. It's the end of the day. He's feet up on a kill, and I'm standing there right next to him. And he's like, uh, uh, his his bird's like eating the quail. Its wings are down, mantling all that stuff. And he's like, Hey, you got any uh, magic potions to get the bird to stop this shit? And of course, this is like nearly springtime. It's you know quite well along in the season. I'm like, well, sure. So he looked at me incredulously, and I'm like, stand right over there. So he takes about four steps away, and I'm like, just stand there. And the bird goes whoop, lifted its wings up just like nothing. He's like, well, son of a bitch, why didn't you tell me about this before? I'm like. I put it in the books. Didn't you read? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. But that that's about uh, the best example I got of cause and effect you've, you've ever <laughs> ever seen in your life. That's, that's probably my favorite human training story. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, and it, it is amazing. Sometimes just the littlest things you don't think of. You know. Well, uh, you, I'm watching the bird's head movements. And it's like uh, looking at him, 
you know, with that sideways head twitch thing. Mm. I would model it, but it won't show up in the pod thing. So there's no reason to do that. <laughs> uh, but I can look at the bird and I can see that it's feeling just a little bit crowded. And all, all it really needs is another five or six feet away and it'll be just fine. Mm-hmm. He moved over there. It immediately raised its wings. And uh, anyhow, so that that's my favorite human training story. <laughs> well, I'm sure that the the subject of the story, you know, is probably to do something with that also, right? <laughs> well, I love hunting quail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I meant the, the the human subject in that oh, part of yeah. the story. Yeah, well, it's a funny story. You yeah, know. <laughs> got a magic pill for that. I'm yeah. like, sure, of course. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well. I know you've already told a few stories with the birds and stuff too, but what's your what's one of the more memorable, other memorable like uh, bird slash non human stories that you have? Human training stories, bird <laughs> slash non human training stories. Any flights? Any particular bird that, uh, that's the most okay, memorable? Okay, this last year, um, I was down in the river bottoms just chucking pigeons underneath the falcons. No big deal. Uh, there's a local vet, Tim Sullivan. He was tagging along that day. And uh, uh, bird stoops down, catches a uh, catches a pigeon, and starting to pluck and eat on it. I'm like, you know, I I kind of got to give it a little bit of space, a little bit of time I can make in, but I need a few more minutes before I do it. Otherwise, she's going to pack it off. It's a female peregrine, and uh, uh, the bird squats down real flat and bolts with the bird. You know, just about that quick, and here comes a male bald eagle, you know, boop, 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 right overhead. Chase that falcon about a half a mile to three fourths of a mile out. They turn 90 degrees. The eagle uh, gets over the top of the bird, dives down, uh, grabs the pigeon rather than the falcon. Unfortunately, the peregrine's foot is between the eagle's foot and the pigeon. So the eagle is flying 90 degrees to us away, (laughs) dragging the peregrine backwards Uh. by one foot, which is pinned to the pigeon. And Tim's like, "Uh, Mike, I think your bird's going to (laughs) die. I think your bird's dead now. There's nothing we can really do about it. (laughs) He's my veterinarian. Yeah, yeah. And we're we got this running dialogue going on, Leo. You know? And then after about two hundred yards, the falcon sort of like falls off the eagle, and the eagle flies away with the pigeon. The bird stands there on the ground. He's like, "Mike, your bird's still alive, but it's gonna die. <laughs> it has no chance." So I, all right, so I swing the lure, and it, boy, she instantly came, you know, right in. And he's looking at. It, he's like, "Hey, I think your bird's gonna live." <laughs> Yeah. Medical science at its best. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to go ahead and plug his practice for everybody too while we're at it? Yeah. Uh, he just—he's retiring. He just sold his practice. No, he's been a very good friend and a, a, a very good veterinarian for many, many decades. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's easy to forget that a lot of this stuff really isn't necessarily rocket science, and and uh, <laughs> yeah, some of the most it's gonna live, it's yeah, gonna die. Exactly. There's a there's a fifty fifty chance your bird's gonna gonna live or die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's ultra scientific falconry for sure. Um, but <laughs> oh, that's hilarious, man. Well, like I said, I'm glad that um, we could make this work though, and I appreciate you finally, you know taking the time to to do it or finally agreeing to do it you know i know that uh 
this typically isn't this type of thing is really not kind of your thing. But I mean, I, I think that a lot of people are going to enjoy, you know, this conversation and, and probably get something out of it. And, and, you know, I appreciate, you know, the, anybody that I can have conversations with friends or just acquaintances or whatever that are, um, are transparent, you know, and, and willing to, to share a lot of this type of stuff, you know, especially someone that's been doing this for a very long time. Thank you so, for the invitation. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And before we, uh, before we end though, I do want to get one last final like piece of advice that you would, would, wouldn't mind leaving for current or, or future generations of, of Falconers. And then we can, uh, go ahead and call this good probably. And, uh, you know, go on about the, the rest of the day and. Okay. Advice, right? Yeah, piece of advice, any okay. sentiment that you'd like to leave? Uh, yeah, be prepared. Before you get your bird, have your facility. Before you get your bird, have your equipment. Before you get your bird, have your hawk food. Plan ahead. Don't don't try to go through life flying by the seat of your pants. Um, there you go. <laughs> Plan ahead. Well done, man. All right. Well, like I said, I appreciate you taking the majority of an afternoon to to do this. And, um, you know, it's been fun. Like I said, hopefully this uh, was at least a little bit fun for you anyway. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> but uh, anyway, well, like I said, hopefully we'll get a chance to actually do some hawking together at some time soon. And, and um, hopefully it won't be another, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, however long it was before I see you again. I don't know. As long as I'm above ground, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, man. Well, like I said, we can go ahead and call this good then, unless there's anything else that you want to share. No, thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you, Mike. And we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon, hopefully. 